Today on Security Science, the current and future states of cloud security. Thank you for joining as we discuss the state of cloud infrastructure and security, primarily through the lens of vulnerability management today, tomorrow, and far into the future. As always, I'm Dan Mellinger, and with me today, we got Kenna Security's Head of Sciencing Data and Chief Prediction Officer, Michael Roitman. What's up, Michael? Hey, I like those titles. It's an upgrade. Yeah, no, I, I, I had some fun coming up with those. Um, we actually also have a special guest today. He has some experience ranging from counterterrorism and physical security as a Marine to building security programs in almost every single industry imaginable. And I wasn't joking. I was actually reading through this quite a few. Retail, DOD, you name it, he's done it. Um, his friends actually call him Mike, but you can call him Rick McElroy, and he's the head of security at VMware Carbon Black. How's it going, Rick? Oh, good, man. Dude, you totally have the podcaster voice down. Like, I'm impressed. I've been working on it. It's gotten a little bit better over time, but it's mostly the microphones, right? I'm going to start listening all. more. It's soothing. It's good. <laughs> awesome. Um, just real quick, I did want to do a little caveat because we like to be fully transparent on this podcast. So, Kenna Security, we work with VMware Carbon Black. We've worked with actually VMware right ahead of them announcing that they were buying Carbon Black in 2018. Um, and we actually announced some new cool stuff that we've been doing with them uh, this last VMworld, actually, what, two months ago now, I think it was? Yeah. Yeah, feels like a lifetime ago at this point. But yeah, Kenna Security, we do some cool technical integration, some cool security scoring, and we'll continue to do work with them in the future. So just wanted to put that out there so you know about our relationship. Um, outside of that, Rick, could you give us a little bit of background? You've been at Carbon Black for a while, through the VMware acquisition, focused on security. You've been doing this for 20 years. Um, what are you working on and kind of what's your focus area lately? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I have a weird story. I started my life as a Marine, wow. got out and um, went to school. And then I was like, yeah, I love InfoSec. I'm going to start doing that. Uh, started building programs, did a bunch of um, red teaming uh, and vulnerability assessments. I mean, like, I think uh, the podcast I was listening to that you guys did, um, you guys were talking about Saint. Um, I think there was like some early Nessus discussions in there, right? Um, yeah, Redna. Um, you know, if you if, if you remember those folks and uh, course, course Kenna along the way and, and all of that good stuff. And, and so building programs, managing bones. Um, and currently, my focus is really around you know prospects and customers helping them mature what they're what they're already doing. Um, I have a huge focus around automation and orchestration. Um, cause I think we, we still have that cyber skills gap and, um, it's one of the ways to fill it. So, uh, I talk a lot about, um, helping manage the burnout and stress of your teams, be, being more efficient, um, and then automation wherever we can. Ah, uh, that makes a ton of sense. And automation is a topic that is near and dear to our hearts here at Kenna Security. So excellent. Well, with that context in mind, let's jump into the main topic, which is, you know, Cloud infrastructure, um, security for the cloud has been changing and evolving over time, and specifically as it relates to vulnerability management. So I figured we'd start with Rick. What's kind of the current state of cloud security, vulnerability management? Like, how are teams and people thinking about this um, as they're moving and or are starting to implement stuff in the cloud? Yeah, I mean, it varies. Uh, I'll be honest. You know, the largest organizations on the planet, I think, are um, probably doing the best. Um, they're able to uh, actually drive metrics. They they have quality assurance teams, right? So so it's not always um, 
a bottleneck in infosec and certainly not a bottleneck in it but uh you know we're making changes to code so you so you got to put that through you know configuration management change management qa you know all of that good stuff and, and so i think there's some opportunities there as well um to start looking at that pipeline of um you know from identification to remediation and helping that out um generally speaking in the cloud i would say um the team's number one complaint don't have visibility um can't necessarily even scan it depends on the contract. It depends who hosts. Um, I think there's still, you know, some discussions in, inside of organizations. Well, who's responsible for something like a firmware patch, right? Is, you know, is is it? Uh, I bought the hardware, but it's hosted in someone's data center. So is it me? Is it them? Right? Um, and and so I think we we've gotten a bit more mature on those. And certainly, um, the largest players are are pushing that ball forward, which is great. And you know, beginning to. Um, uh, uh, you know, be be transparent about those processes, you know, how they do them, and then their time commitments on all of them. I want to kind of push sideways, not back on the large <laughs> players being the best at it. So we did a research report with the CNT Institute. We looked at vulnerability patch rates across, I think, about 110 customers opted into this. Um, and we found out that the capacity for remediation stays at about 10% of your vulnerabilities a month, regardless of the size of the organization. This was like a mind-blowing chart where organizations that have a thousand vulnerabilities and organizations that have a million or 10 million vulnerabilities, the average patch uh, monthly close rate is what it was actually of vulnerabilities. So sometimes a patch can close, you know, 10 molds. Um, stays at about 10%. Top performers do about 20% a month capacity-wise. But the line of best fit is like a straight shot, power law. As you get bigger, of course, their teams are better. But the problem gets exponentially bigger. So capacity stays at about 10%. So was there any indication of like the bottleneck on that? Like why, why isn't that like larger? Right. Well, we did some follow-up surveys to try to uncover what it is that leads people to be top performers versus not. Um, so my gut tells me that it's a question of security versus technology risk. Some things are actual threats to an organization and need to be remediated. And those are the things security teams like to close out somewhat quickly. Um, some things are vulnerabilities that might be within PCI scope even, but they don't really pose a risk. Like it has to be an interaction of three or four vulnerabilities together. You already have to be on the network. Uh, some large banks we work with have called those tech risk. Like that's not even a security problem. We have to get to that, we have to do that, but IT ops can get to it whenever they get to it. Might take you know three months, six months. Uh, it doesn't escalate to a P three or a P two or a P one where you would actually take security prevention. Uh, but my question to you is, if large organizations have these systems figured out and they're not fully automated yet, that's why we are in the software business building these tools. Um, what can smaller organizations or ones that aren't scanning all of their asset inventory yet? learn from those larger organizations so they can kind of leapfrog into a more automated world where their capacity might start out at 20%. Yeah. I mean, number one is like, think about the entire pipeline, right? So it's, uh, it's not enough to have, you know, one InfoSec person or multiple InfoSec people say here is the list of things. Um, you know, that has to be discussed, right? Because to, to your earlier point, um, just because it's vulnerable doesn't mean it's exploitable. Right, which is uh, uh, you know kind of how I, I would view tech risk versus you know a security risk, right? Um, and, and then it's so what's realistic in our environment? Um, I think looking at the data sources you need to put that picture together, 
is a good way to go there. Um, for a lot of the smaller shops, um, simply put, they're probably running on someone's cloud who's handling it anyway, except for their endpoints. Um, so, you know, for, for those types of shops, I say just turn on patching. Like, like it's fine. Microsoft hasn't broken anything in a while, I, right? I feel like you're baiting me here. You're saying except yeah. for their endpoints. Right. We should go. We should go there. We should go there now. Yeah, yeah um, I mean, gen- generally speaking, <laughs> right? I mean, they're, they're, the look at look at modern startups, right? It's like they have no infrastructure. Their infrastructure is a laptop, right? I mean, that's that's the assets that that company owns, right? Everything else is a, a, a subscription model. And, yeah, and, and service so, from Google or yeah. VMware or whatnot, right? Yeah, and so in a lot of cases, um, if if it's a tech startup, you know, it's probably someone there. Uh, that's actually doing the support, but but maybe they have a friend that's that's providing IT support, right? But um, my general advice to those types of organizations is um, turn on automatic patching wherever you can. Uh, uh, again, I'd rather troubleshoot um, a bad patch than than I would um, a malicious actor on an endpoint. Uh, but as you start to mature, right? So so let's take this example because I like this. Um, company's successful; they start to grow, right? Now they've got um, hundreds of people. Uh, they're probably running infrastructure in multiple cloud environments. Um, they've probably hired an infosec person to to sort of get an uh, uh, an assessment, like what do we have, what's our footprint, right? Um, what are the things that we're going to need to address immediately? Uh, maybe they have regulations that are coming in at this point for whatever their business model is, um, which. Uh, generally dictates that you do something like vulnerability assessment management, um, and then and then have a path for maturity, right? Um, but 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 I think if you if you start to think of all the the areas, so so putting myself in their shoes because I built programs like this, right? Thinking of all the areas where where it's like where don't I need humans, right? I, I need the humans to actually an- analyze the the final data set, which is. This group of systems poses this group of risk, and is this risk actually going to lead to an exploit? And I do need some humans to come and look at that today, right? Call that a um, a steering committee, you know, uh, 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 collaborative committee, you know, meetings between information security on on a certain business owner systems, all that good stuff. But, well, so um, so I think the key yeah. there is that it's a committee of security, business, probably IT as well. Um, I think what a lot of organizations get wrong. And not to toot our own horns, but I think why the Kennel Security VMware partnership is especially important is that that final data set is usually defined as a list of your Qualys or Tenable outputs completely. And that is a whole bunch of noise that overwhelms most folks, and a committee isn't going to go through that. So the final data set has to be something tractable, manageable, and already have intelligence baked in where it's small enough to use people. Because like you said, you're going to have to use a committee of people that's your most expensive resource. Well, and think about the time. You know, time's the finite resource. You know, I say this to teams all the time. It's like, what are you spending your time on? Um, do I want to? No, I don't want to. I want to. I want an intelligent system that gives me that output, gives me the data I need, so I can sit down with the team, explain it to them clearly. They're going to push back in a lot of cases, right? Um, especially if it's their own code, you know, that they've written, right? But. Um, you know, and then and then I think working with IT to make sure do I have resilient systems, right? It's one of the cool things about Carbon Black coming over to VMware is is starting to look at this problem and say, well, look, if I have enough orchestration inside of a data center, um, ransomware prevention, detection, response looks a whole lot different, right? I, I would argue vulnerability management in that world starts to look different. Um, because my risk of actually taking down a production system, if I'm doing it right, um, is very low, 
right? I'm, I'm, I have the ability to clone applications, move them to multiple data centers. Um, so, so I think um, security actually learning from uh, the IT teams on resiliency is, is like super beneficial to us, right, as, as defenders. Huh. That's actually really, really interesting because normally, you know, we're thinking about a tier point of, you know, throwing IT security people room, big list of things to deal with, you know, and now you're negotiating, right? What can we do? Why should we do it? We don't have enough time for this. This represents too much technology risk, yada, 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 right? And that's normally it's, you know, security trying to dictate to IT, this is what you guys need to do, and here's why. Um, and you're saying there's actually, uh, you know, kind of the inverse relationship was like, hey, why don't you take some of our lessons learned on creating more resilient systems, things that we can afford to turn off, right? If there's a security issue, um, and uh, spin something else up instead. Is that? Is that yeah, I, I made what a you're ton of mistakes to? along this journey. Hmm. Like I, you know, I didn't get to a point this point without making a huge amount of state. What? You know, I'll give you an example. Um, started a new organization. We had no idea what we had. They 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 went from 100 employees to like 10,000 in a ridiculous amount of time. It was just crazy. It was awesome growth. You know, I got to be part of it, all that stuff. But, um, you know, so imagine like you have decent relationships with IT. You go out to coffee with them and do the social engineering things that we do in security um, to, <laughs> to try to get them to get them to do some security work. Uh, and then and then you buy a vulnerability scanner because you need the info. Right, like I, I'm, I'm a big uh, believer in known state and, and ground truth. Right, so, um, and now I've got a list of things, uh, and I, and I'm I'm smart, uh, and my team's pretty smart, and so it's like, well, we got to get these things out of our work bucket into someone else's work bucket. Like we did our job, we assessed everything in the environment. Okay, how can we automate it? Cool. Um, let's start to write some ServiceNow code that does some automation um, that instantly stuffs them in the tickets in the IT team. Well, what is the overall impact of that? Um, their metrics and dashboard were hosed, right? So you can imagine <laughs> the political capital yep. uh, or, or the, I should say the political ill will that comes with that when, look, our intention was not that, right? My intention was to make people aware, drive an outcome, um, have discussions around 30, 60, and 90-day you know, patching cycles and, and exceptions and all of that good stuff. Um, but, but I think there's some better methods than like brute forcing, uh, 10 or 15,000 tickets into someone's. So someone's you're, game. you're admitting that you have opened ServiceNow ticket floodgates on IT teams before. Yeah, and absolutely. And, and what, what's I'm the largest number of tickets that you've opened? I'm surprised. Yeah. No, they still, they, they appreciated the coffee. <laughs> yeah, no, that's definitely interesting. Um, I mean, going to that footprinting thing, like how do you, I, I know from our perspective, right, even looking at CVEs to prioritize, um, it's not always intuitive, right? And sometimes you want a human in the mix to interpret the results. Um, you know, I, I think where what's the current status, and maybe this is better for you, Michael, of automation today when it comes to this kind of prioritization, right? How much of that can we do today from an automation standpoint without overwhelming, you know, IT teams? So I, I think the better question is, where should the automation be? So I'm hearing this story and I'm thinking, well, you're doing the right thing. You're essentially creating uh, an awareness situational report for the entire organization. It's just that the situation looks pretty bad. So I, I'm going to coin this term. It's going to be on the RSA show floor all of next year, if there is a show floor. Um, intelligent awareness. Because there's a strategic way to drive that awareness where more things get done, even if you're not presenting the entire landscape of 200 million vulnerabilities across the organization. So I think some of the automation is on that piece. 
of we have 200,000 findings for these 10,000 assets, but we're only going to present these 2,000 because we did some automation on an intelligent analysis of that situation. It makes me think of, I worked for, like I helped out a friend with an Air Force startup that did radar data analysis. So if you look at a radar around the U.S. city, there are thousands of planes flying in the sky every day. 99% of them are normal air traffic that nobody should be worried about. Once in a while, there starts to emerge some kind of data indicating maybe this one is taking the wrong trajectory. Maybe it's a, you know, a hobby drone that's in the wrong place. Maybe this plane's approach is a little off. So there are these like little indicators of intelligent data about them that can tell you, hey, you don't need to look at all 2 million planes in the sky. You can look at these 100, and then let's bring that to some people who are actually going to act on it. The automation comes from machine learning algorithms that are analyzing trajectories of airplanes. It's, it's a physics problem. I think the same thing exists in security. There's a physics problem, science, hard component of what's the probability this thing is going to get exploited. Do these exploits exist? What's the chance that one gets written? Is the code already being exploited somewhere else? And that problem really doesn't need human input. It needs intelligence. Or the chain of, do I have mitigating controls upstream? Right. Right, which is, which is where the humans come in to go, well, wait a second. It's, you know, we'll move this from a high you know, or a critical down to a medium because you know, I have um, upstream defenses against you know, remote code, code, code exploits. Okay, so let's assume they have to come on site and stick a USB stick. Awesome. Like as far as I'm concerned, for an enterprise security program, that's that's a win, right? Like, yeah. So 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 I do think you're right. I think generally speaking, um, and and it's interesting. I've been having some other automation discussions, but but it's sort of plateaued out there uh, in inside of infosec, right? Like we are taking some bidirectional actions with some tools. Um, we're we're automating tons of data analysis, right? Um, but generally speaking, inside of teams, what they're what they're doing is automating the workflows. Yeah, I was I was just thinking that as you were saying it. It's like you can automate cutting tickets all you like, but did that really increase your capacity, or did you just cut more tickets? Yeah, and then is it is, you're just moving the honestly you're just moving the noise to someone else's bucket, right? Because now you know some overwhelmed admin for vSphere is like, whoa, wait a second, and these are all critical, right? And then you you kind of get in that panic mode. I, I think it's more appropriate um, to have a discussion up front around. What what is this man? What is the management of this going to look like, right? Like, what are the standards that we're going to operate under? What are the goals that we're going to try to set? And then trying to get some wins along that way to prove it, right? So maybe take um, some easier environments to prove out the model before you go to, um, you know, your production application that <laughs> that makes all the money in the company. Um, IT will have more confidence in what you're trying to do, right? I think your team will, and then and then you won't lose credibility. When you have, when there's that day when you have, when you walk in and you go, well, wait a second, Eternal Blue, like this is real, uh, Blue Keep, this is real, like, and those are probably things you might have to move on. Um, but, but I say, um, and this is what's awesome about Kenna, right? It's like they they give you the ammo to do that. I, I think to be more accurate about your approach to IT when you have to go in and say, like, yo, we, we got to do emergency patching, and uh, and it's it's that day, right? Yeah. Well, I think with Kenna, one of the things we found with like IT teams, right, when they're all working off the same data set, it even it doesn't matter who finds it, right? Uh, Blue Keep, 
right? Good example. Hey, can I flag this? It popped up and then the vSphere admin who's overloaded go looks in his carbon black interface and was like, oh, wow. Yeah, okay. Yeah, we need to patch this. I can see that, right? I understand. We're all working off the same data set here. Um, I can go do that, right? So now it's more of a nudge, if anything, or, you know, IT and, you know, admins are empowered to do this on their own, right? I think it's a natural shift in the philosophy of how we build security products too. You know, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, we were really concerned with building the right sensors so we could capture the right data. And I think a lot of organizations are still stuck in that mindset of how can I detect more? How can I show more to the security practitioner? But that's not the problem security practitioners are facing. They're facing the problem of how do we only precisely show to IT ops that which we is actually a risk? How do we cry wolf less? That's a signal to noise problem. That's not a data collection problem. And of course, we should keep getting better at data collection. We just need to understand where it fits into the life cycle of vulnerability management. What's interesting too is I think part of the catharsis uh, that the teams can reach is like what Rick said, right? I accidentally cut, you know, we automated this, we accidentally cut way too many tickets. Um, but having security understand, like, hey, yeah, we know we've been data overload. I'm sorry, my bad, but we have this new process, right? It's based off of this, this, and this. We can all come to the same conclusions together and let's work together on this is really powerful. Um, I think that's kind of cool. And we're actually starting to move now, I think, um, into kind of this near term, right? Um, starting to remove humans from the remediation loop, right? That's kind of where we're trying to get um, near term, right? I think. <laughs> Okay. So Rick, question for you then. Where can we remove humans from the remediation loop? You've ran programs before. You see how your customers are using your current products. Is there a segment of the infrastructure that folks are automating the patching on successfully? Is there a specific type of organization that's doing it well? Is there a specific type of, I don't know, technology infrastructure that just you can't do that on because it's too mission critical? Yeah. Um, I've seen I've seen a high amount of success uh, in in teams that have a DevOps mentality, right? And I know I know secure, we're on a security podcast, so I'm probably <laughs> going to hear about saying DevOps, right? But look, hey, the reality shift is, left, shift left. Yeah, look, the reality is um, I deal with reality, and it's a reality I have to deal with, right? So, um, but but when you start to look at some of these tools that are out there, right? And and you know, um, we're we're already doing smoke testing, right? Is my application up? Okay, well, that's a very rudimentary way uh, of maintaining availability, um, but it's like, how, how much more granular can I get with that? Awesome. Well, if I have um, Python coders and I have some DevOps folks that can start to break the application apart and test the individual pieces, then I say, why? Because all the orchestration tools are there from an IT perspective, whether you're using SCCM to deliver it, whether you're using you know uh, MSI push, like whatever you're using to do that. Um, that, that's all there, right? And so, and so then I go, well, well, look, I can orchestrate um, data centers moving based on a failure of a network connection. Oh, oh, okay, well, if I can do that, then I can clone systems. Uh, can, can I? How, how many of these systems can I clone in the VM world? It, 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 infinity times, yeah. right? So, so if I can clone a production server and I can make that look like now I have a dev environment, I have a QA environment. I have a t you know, the, the, it, like the proper things you should do anyway to do testing. Well, can can I start to swap those? Meaning, right? What I'm going to do is I'm going to walk my patch through, 
you know, my test environment. I'm going to walk it through QA. I'm going to walk it into um, non-prod. And then can I just swap non-prod into prod if it's working, right? I, I say the I, I say the tools exist to do that. Um, now, granted, um, again, you're going to see a lot of that come from um, very large shops, right? That that have the they have the engineers to do it. So so then I say, okay, commercially, what do we need to do to make this available and democratize it to everyone? Well, vendors, we have to get together and then and then say, I, I think we need a little bit of an evolution with what we're doing with APIs today, a little bit, um, uh, and I, I think that would help. But um, but yeah, there, there's tons of opportunities to to test your code, you know, along the way. I mean, I'm not going to plug any specific vendors, but you know, dynamic testing exists. Um, there's some great great quality assurance tools, um, and, and then I think you know a lot of the IT management tools have them built into it. Well, so I think what you're talking about is that tooling has the capability to support any kind of workflow that you might have. And one workflow, I actually see this all the time at our customers, where the uh, patch verification is actually the bottleneck in automating something through a SOAR tool. You know, we might have identified 100 vulnerabilities with exploits across your network. You want to auto patch them. The thing that's stopping large customers from doing that is that there's another process which is largely manual, which is testing that patch and verifying it and then deploying it. So you just walked us through an excellent use case for how we can automate that. I think a lot of vendors have built the tooling to allow folks to build their processes. But now is the time when we have to walk backwards and say, hey, we know that 90% of organizations have a patch verification process. Can we automate 80% of that patch verification process for them? Certainly on, let's say, Windows systems, right? Yeah, I, I think sometimes that, that like we're the bottleneck. You know, everything's on its own maturity arc. Uh, but but I've been really thinking about like why are we, and I'm going to say stuck like overall as an industry in, in in security with automation. And you know, some of it might be some IT admins who go like, oh, if I do that, you know, I'm going to lose my gig. And um, but but I can just say um, whether it's data center automation, you know, uh, security testing, like. I, I haven't been laid off because I automated something. Uh, in fact, they just gave you more work to do. <laughs> so it's like, yeah. don't work out. Like, like so, so I hope um, if, if there are people um, who run, a, you know, IT operations, you know, like don't be fearful um, that you're, you're a patch manager today and you're going to lose your job. I, I can almost guarantee the company needs you working on, uh, I think, um, some more, more important uh, digital transformations than, than patch management, right? You know that's interesting because we were we were all chatting on this line before we start hit record. But right, what, what's the hard thing to do for businesses? Right, scale and logistics. Right, if you're able to enhance scale and or make logistics work more smoothly because you can automate things effectively, you're you're gonna have a valuable position in any organization. Right, because that's literally the hardest thing to do as a business is really grow beyond that. Not to mention that we just talked about the capacity constraint. So if organization's capacity is really 10%, the automation isn't something that means you're no longer needed. It's quite the opposite. It means we need you to scale that 10x on average to what it was before, and automation is only part of that piece. Yeah, that's super interesting, Rick. I haven't heard anyone articulate it quite that way, so I've never heard that point. This is a hard question, but do you feel like if I took that, to, if, if that was my team's 10%, all right. And I took that 10% and I was like, I'm going to stop doing this work and I'm going to spend the 10% of the time on some automation stuff. Do, do you, do you generally feel like that would yield more fruit as a path or 
Um, should, should you look at maybe dedicating 1% of the tank? You know, I, like, you know, as somebody's approaching an automation first mindset, it's hard if you're not doing a greenfield build, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's much harder to renovate a house than to build a new one for sure. Yeah. My advice was always, if you did it five times and it, and the results were the same, it's probably a good candidate to automate, but, um, but that's very rudimentary advice, right? Like, and I, I want to say, I want to be controversial and say, yeah, just stop patching and go ahead and automate and you'll get the results and it'll pay dividends later. That's not the reality for a lot of organizations. And as we were talking, I was thinking about, okay, so what's the real breakdown? Like how much do you need to manage 20% of the risk? What's the 80-20 rule here? And well, we know about two to 3% of vulnerabilities are actually used in active exploits. What if your current team's capacity is 10%, you shrunk that down to five for six months? And you use that six months to do an automation deployment that would then increase it to 25%. And you look at the integral of that function, you've just increased your capacity 4x. Yeah. Well, and I was I was also going to bring up that, Michael, the data that you brought up in the beginning, right? That 10%, that was your a, a company's ability to reduce vulnerability debt, right? So to patch more things that came in in any given 30-day period, right? Um, but that data sets a little biased. It's kind of customers, <laughs> um, right? So that's who we were looking at. And and the when we broke it down, the the biggest correlating factor too was setting SLAs and using Kenna as your risk-based metric, right? Um, so there's an argument to be made that 10X is kind of a baseline for the earliest type of uh, you know programs, people, systems, and that 2.5X, the 25%, People were more likely leveraging more automation via Kenna and other people, right? And also setting processes to that. So they're, they were setting up stronger programs from the get-go and leveraging automation, and that was yielding that uh, 2.5x increase in productivity. I don't think it's because – I don't want to say something bad about our product, but I don't, I don't think it's because our product is very mature on the automation scale yet. No, um, no, no. You know, the VMware Carbon Black Partnership is probably our first foray into really doing that. Uh, and it's it's early days. So I think what you're seeing in that data set is that the folks that are leveraging risk-based vulnerability management and prioritization aren't playing the vulnerability debt game. They're not playing the we fix 10,000 out of a million game. They're playing the we know that only a small subset is responsible for most of the risk. So almost by default, they have more time to then devote to other automation activities, whether they're within Kenna or somewhere else. Uh, in the future, I hope that we can automate some of that process for them. But I think today we're just giving them back time to spend on increasing capacity elsewhere. Yeah, that's a super good point. Because like as an example, right, we, we, we have the number one app control product on the market. So, so we see this as well. Um, generally, I would say applied towards um, legacy operating systems and things that there's just no support for. Um, but but we've actually seen tons of adoptions where CISOs are like, uh, I need to buy myself some time, mm-hmm. right? So this idea that like, hey, I, I can actually harden this thing, I can thin the attack surface out, um, and then I I have time for a manufacturer to come up with a, a software update because maybe it's a, an ICS system, you know, um, I, I I have time for my teams to rewrite some code. Um, so so you know, for me, like I always keep that as like a handy. Um, uh, uh, 
tool in the toolkit is there are you know other mitigating controls that will help you buy that time that your team needs so it's uh, it doesn't become as urgent when the rest of the world is getting hit by heart bleed and you go like boss we're good like we 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 had that covered for these reasons right well i mean i i think it'd be a good time actually let's transition what what does five years look like within this kind of scenario right like where are we going next um in regards to like source systems or SIM automation, um, pulling people out of the loop as much as possible and building that scale into VM, cloud-based security, all that fun stuff. I think um, I'm going to keep my optimistic hat on for this one. Uh, I, I love the optimistic hat. That's the fun one. I think we have enough data as an industry to, like to, to Mike's earlier point, like we have enough data to determine the bottlenecks. And, and so then I go like the bottlenecks are, are, are ripe for automation. Um, so, you know, it, it's like automating identification at this point, that's table stakes. I'm sure you guys probably know that, right? Like you can't, you can't not have some automation when it comes to detecting, you know, systems and, and uh, vulnerabilities, right? But cool. Okay. How, how can we provide um, more meaning behind these CVEs, right? How can, because I think the data exists to start to put this together. And this is where I'm really interested in, in picking Mike's brain. Um, I'm not a data scientist, but I hang out with them sometimes. Um, is, is this idea that I I have these large data sets because I'm, uh, I'm it's it it's either my data lake or someone else's. Um, generally speaking, and I'm going to look at this with my card black hat on um, from an endpoint perspective. I have so much data on an endpoint already, right? I, I mean, I, I got a telemetry data, I got process data. Um, so, so how can I use that that data um, on our side, right? We're going to look at um, malicious and uh, and normal, like that's generally where we're going to apply that to. Um, but, but I'm keenly interested in this idea of probability models, um, meaning um, if uh, I'm a business owner, or if I own a a, a car, like well, it doesn't matter the thing. I just want to know, or a house, like what's the likelihood that someone bad is going to walk by with a crowbar? Right, because then I can make I can make some um, intelligent decisions on that. Right, I can choose to put in better locks. Right, I can choose to park inside my garage instead of all the street. But if I don't have the the data to, to get that awareness, I do, I don't know where to shift that ten percent of time um, when we know it's precious. And then uh, oh shit, this action this matters. Right. I remember a discussion I had with. Ben Johnson, who was one of the founders of Carbon Black. Yeah, 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 yeah. Ben eight, over at Obsidian now. Right. It was. It was. I want to say eight years ago, seven years ago. This was in an incubator in Chicago when Kenna was maybe fifteen people and Carbon Black was maybe twenty-five back in the days. And we were talking about, and this never came to fruition. I mean, it did now, six years later. Um, what would it look like if a customer had access to everything that Carbon Black was at that point providing uh, on-premise in the cloud and then piped back into Kenna? What could we do with that data? So what you're saying is absolutely right. It's if I look at the state of a system, I know that there's technical details about that system, but there's also time-based inferences we can make about that system based on past probabilities, based on that system, based on systems that have looked like it and have gotten breached in the past. So Today, most IT ops software defines a system as its current state, not its future state. And I think that can change. Uh, but the real value of that is to walk backwards and say, Carbon Black has found that an intrusion has occurred. Now you've got to go do something about it. The thing that most analysts would do is then look at that system and say, 
based on these states in the past, there were 400 different ways this malware could have gotten in. I got to figure out the right one. I'm doing an investigation now. And this is like the most expensive time on the detect and response side, right? That's not the SOC analysis time. It's the investigation time. What if instead you could support those decisions for those investigators by saying, hey, there's 400 different things that have happened over the past six months on this machine that could have been the thing. Um, but based on our intelligence data and based on a probabilistic model, we think the highest probability is these five Adobe Reader vulnerabilities. And Start if you could, here. yeah, if you could save them that week of initial investigation time, that's a near term goal. I don't think that's five years. I think that's two. But that's marrying the data that we have on the vulnerability management side with the data that you have about a system's current state and essentially building a model for decision support, not on remediation, but on investigation. So it's People flipping still the use Adobe Reader real quick? People still get hacked on Adobe Reader <laughs> on a daily the, basis. Day. No, yeah, I'm, day, I'm, I'm, it's funny. We're doing this little project for 10 years of vulnerabilities. So I'm looking at all the top rated CVs that we've ever rated. And I'm looking at 2010 and 2011. And it's all Office, WinServer, Adobe Flash, Adobe Reader. That's all it is. And lately, not so much. Um, I guess people are starting to transition to, you know, just opening PDFs in Chrome or whatnot. But yeah, it's Be a side note. Yeah. Um, a that's interesting. Out there handling documents. <laughs> that is very, very true. Yeah. I think one of the tops in 2018 is a Foxit remote code execution. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> so, Michael, you're talking about basically uh, just saving time, right? Giving someone a lead. Uh, on where to start so they don't have to go investigate a hundred other possibilities? Yeah, I mean, look, a machine learning model is absolutely useless unless it provides decision support value to somebody. It's either making the decision for someone, and I think that's risky when it comes to security, or it's supporting their decision. Uh, we've spent 10 years at Kenna supporting the which vulnerability should I remediate decision, building models that tell you this is the one that's likely to cause compromise. Uh, that's not the only place where people make inferential judgment about vulnerabilities. Now that we're kind of walking into the IT ops detect and response side of the house, kind of the evolution from EDR to XDR, you can look there and think about, well, okay, this is an amazing tool, but what do people use this tool for? There's a set of decisions they make. And consequently, there's a set of machine learning models we have to build that save them time. And I don't care if we save them 20% of the time or 90% of the time, those models will get better over time. The key is that we now marry these two data sets and start building those models. And I think we're in a unique place to do that. I think there's a lot of the industry has the data to do it. I think it's a combination of the right data sets, right place, and then the gusto to actually go and build those models and deploy them to customers. Interesting. We just came up with the product roadmap for 2021, if Apparently. anyone's listening. <laughs> Don't tell anyone. Oh, wait, this is public. Um, Real quick, you mentioned EDR's conversion to XDR. What's what's XDR? What's the difference? Yeah, um, so so I mean, I can give you the official definition. It's extended detection or response, right? Uh -huh. um, here's the way I put it: um, it's what I need to do detection or response, right? So so you've seen niche products in that space, right? Network detection response, endpoint detection response. Um, what XDR really represents is a um, is a flag um, for vendors for teams as they're starting to think about detection and response holistically, well, I need multiple camera angles. If I, if I own a bank and I have a vault, 
I need the street street camera. I need one when they come in the door, right? I need one on the vault, like all of these things, right? Um, and then someone watching all that stuff. So, so essentially, all it represents is um, being able to contextualize this picture of what do the attackers do, um, and then on the vendor side, uh, what all of the vendors are working on, right? So we're working on it. A bunch of our competitions working on it. Um, is who who can have all of these d- disparate controls talk the same language? And then start to drive action, like in a meaningful way, right? Um, so, so moving away from uh, uh, things like API calls, so that um, at least in a VMware world, like ours is just going to be software code that runs as part of vSphere. Um, so, so that'll represent like how does EDR start to get into um, vSphere? How do we start to integrate that with things like Lastline and NSX and all the other products? Uh, but really, all all it really means is. And, and if you're an operator of a SOC today or you're there, you're probably already doing a bit of XDR. You're, you're logging Windows event logs. You know, you've got data sources that are on the network. You're, you're putting them into a SIM. Um, but, but what's cool about XDR is like um, folks are going to start working on XDR analytics, right? So, so again, to Mike's earlier point, analytics have been applied um, in all of these um, uh, different niches, right? So I, I'm going to apply it over here for this purpose. But now it's like, oh, let's holistically look at all of these TTPs, the entire chain, and then be able to put analytics, which which does represent, in my humble opinion, and I know people hate XDR, um, but but I'll draft behind um, great marketing language to get better security. I, I think it does represent that, that great push forward um, because the vendors now have to think about this and say, well, why don't we just build this into the operating system? Why don't we just build this in um, to, to the infrastructure itself? Uh, instead of bolting all this stuff on and and yeah, so so I'm hopeful. I'm I'm really hopeful about it. Ah, oh, that's interesting. So leveraging the, I mean, the tools that already exist, right? As long as you know, we can piggyback off of. Yeah, they just talk different languages, right? It's like, yeah, we sort of got together on threat intelligence sharing, right? And generally, <laughs> yeah, same-ish. Like generally, that's Wait. the same thing. Sticks and taxi, right? That's how everyone communicates. Yeah, but it'd be cooler if like machine language just spoke threat language and then a machine could go do something about it which which i think speaks to like the future future discussion that we have teed up yeah well i know we're we're getting short on time so i i don't want to miss on this and i because uh, you brought up some cool stuff when we were prepping for this 20 years from now what what, what do you see like we're talking about automation that's, that's such a tiny question dan <laughs> tired at that point. not the not the old dude in the room still screaming about passwords um <laughs> he's just trying to get some stock the old man screaming all. at the cloud two-factor authentication yeah um you know i do work for a very large virtualization company um and and i, I would say this conversation predates i think the acquisition of vmware but just something that i think if you follow technology you know if you, if you the the idea that we're abstracting all the things modern operating systems why can't i just do that in a container right so so when i start putting on that hat right i i start thinking about um things like well um kids kids you know 10 years from now aren't going to care if it's a windows os or ios like like if you if you ask a programmer today they're like oh i'm a full stack programmer in aws oh so you know linux no i program in aws Right, like these. This is how we're crafting, uh, y- y- you know, um, education. Right, like all of this stuff. So, so I think we'll see further abstraction. I think um, this idea of software-defined security is very interesting, especially if you control infrastructure and and create um, infrastructure services. Um, I think that's intriguing to me because it because it actually represents um, a way to take a lot of this 
bolted on stuff that we put into security. Deception is an example. I, I want an operating system that does deception, like it's part of it, right? I I, I just want that. Um, and then, of course, the attackers will innovate and, you know, yada, 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 right? But, but I think we do need to leap forward in how we think about um, operating systems and, and our security stacks, for sure. Michael, any any thoughts from your end as we close this up? Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about all of this instrumentation that we're building now. Um, I think Rick's point is spot on. It's how people use it that ultimately makes something more or less secure. And I think we're just now learning some of those use cases. Some of them are coming from other vendors entering the market, like analytics on top of XDR. Um, but there is a complete picture. There is a complete set of sensors that gets you everything you need. Kind of the operating system of security being, let's capture everything that we need to then make changes to that system proactively or reactively, whether it's vulnerability management or the SOC. Uh, it would be awesome if we could do that as software. If a security engineer didn't have to cobble together 14 different tools in order to then translate that somehow to script an API call, if instead they could issue commands the way that we do in Python or Ruby. Um, 20 years is a long time. I'm hopeful that you know all of this hard work that we're doing now, which is the, the minute signature capture, translation of software to vulnerability, you know, millisecond timing of the state of a system, all of that is the grunt work. And on top of that will actually be the language of actual security, hopefully. Interesting. Yeah, that takes me back to our, our risk episode that we did where, I mean, when we think about it, technology as we know it today is relatively new. We don't have a ton of data yet on it. And so it's it's kind of humbling to think that we're actually collecting and trying to make meaning out of that data right now. Um, that's, that's super interesting to think about. Uh, any closing thoughts, Rick? Last thing before we sign off. I know we're a little bit over on time. Uh, it's the end of the year. I hope everybody made it through safe. Uh, just wanted to thank everybody for all their hard work. Um, it's very tough being behind the scenes, but um, committed to being, you know, uh, protecting everyone's data and keeping them safe and keeping patients, uh, uh, being able to be treated. So I just always thank the community because uh, we're pretty awesome and uh, we do a whole lot of stuff that does that goes unthanked. So. Absolutely. Uh, well, we appreciate that. And we appreciate you being on the show here, Rick. Um, I'm going to go ahead and link to your Twitter account, by the way. So if people want to yell at you about this episode, they can do it directly. Uh, awesome. You can always yell at me directly as well. Michael's pretty prolific. Um, I'll also link to VMware and uh, Carbon Black in the XDR page. Just why not? Because I think it'd be good context to have that. as well. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we thank everyone for listening. Have a great day. Mm-hmm.